0: Welcome to another episode of The Collective Evolution Show, I'm Joe Martino. The CE Show is a podcast that will feature anything from discussions to monologues or even sometimes reports on a variety of topics all framed within the context of transformation that is occurring both um, within us as individuals but also collectively as a society. Our current paradigm seems to be falling apart and things are becoming quite chaotic in our world. But this is actually a powerful catalyst for us to notice that the old ways of viewing the world are simply no longer working. And in a sense, much of traditional media or what we might call mainstream media, even academia, seem to be failing at exploring these transitions that are underway. Um, And many of us are kind of deeply noticing this and are searching for a different kind of conversation. So we've arrived at a time where we must start having these conversations about emerging ideas that come from an entirely different idea or narrative about what it means to be human, why we're here, and what kind of world we truly want to create and live within. Um, On this podcast, we'll talk about anything from current events to personal transformation, consciousness, future technology, uh, new economic models, cutting edge health, and so on. We'll explore real things that are happening, that are inspiring, but not necessarily explored in pop culture or media. All of these topics can also be explored uh, more deeply on our website at collective-evolution.com, where we have articles, essays, and videos. You can also join our membership platform called CTV, where we have a ton of exclusive video content, including original shows, discussions, courses, and guides to help you make sense of the world and engage in the process of creating a new narrative for humanity as we move forward. You can visit ctv.1 to check out our membership area. This was a fascinating conversation that I had with uh my good friend Adam Curry. Um, you know, Adam is an inventor and an entrepreneur, he, he takes like obscure ideas and very unconventional ideas, uh, new perspectives, new discoveries. are happening in the world and he makes them into and brings them into uh, everyday consumer products and this usually touches on anything from quantum physics to health really fascinating individual really fascinating work that he's doing and i thought we'd have a really cool conversation Um, adam we're going to in this conversation we're going to be getting into um, anything from looking at the impacts that Um, COVID has had on our collective consciousness, how we can measure that, what that looks like. Uh, We're gonna get into, you know, sort of some of the collective, the current collective trauma that's going on, the things that people are kind of working through and what the importance of that is. On a societal level, to build you know a greater sense of collective awareness, a greater sense of collective intelligence, uh, we're also going to get into in this discussion some of the limitations of science and what that's leading to, and also explore, which is you know kind of been one of our favorite subjects to kind of unpack lately, which is this idea of conspiracy theories, which is they're absolutely real. We all know this, but some of the nuanced positions within that and why now is the time to be having this conversation because although we've been talking about this stuff for about 12 or 13 years, um, it's become mainstream. And in that, it's become incredibly important to ask the question, how do we go about discussing these things on an effective level? So enjoy this interview and uh, we'll catch you when I'm back from a break. All right, Adam, good to see you again. Um, It's been a while since we got to catch up last so i'm sure you've had uh lots of fun over the past little while and plus covid's been going on which has been fun for everybody i think
1: (laughs) it's amazing how much the world can change in nine months
0: absolutely absolutely so for those people who don't know a lot about uh, you your work your story why don't we start uh, a little bit with like you know you're obviously young like i am you know in our 30s i believe and Mm -hmm. um You've been into this into whether it be consciousness research, entrepreneurship, you know, inventing various, uh, I guess you could say, phenomenal technologies, ideas, so on and so forth. What got you into this at such a such a young age? Um, you know, like it's a it's an obscure, sometimes non-popular topic to explore consciousness so deeply. How'd you land there?
1: Yeah, the consciousness stuff and the the weird science stuff. Um, now it's. It's, it's, it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. which is amazing. But 20 years ago, it was, it was strange for anyone to be doing this. Um, so when I was a kid, I, I loved to tinker. Uh, my mom would bring home parts of electronics equipment and I just loved taking them apart and building stuff. So I had a, a kind of a very early understanding of electronics and love to build things and, and the science that went along with uh, electronics and electromagnet, electromagnetism. I lived in Colorado Springs and that's where Tesla had a laboratory for many years in Colorado Springs. So the remnants of his laboratory with uh, many of the pieces of equipment that he had were held together in this little Tesla museum that was in this uh, industrial district in Colorado Springs. And so my mom would take me there and kind of just drop me off. And I got to actually play with, there's, no, there's never anyone there. There's just this one guy that ran this museum. So. Um, he showed me, you know, original Tesla coils and I got to touch them. And he told me these stories about, about Tesla. And I was transfixed. Um, I loved nothing more than weird Victorian (laughs) apparatus. So like you do when, you know, you're seven or eight. And um, so when I became old enough, I started reading uh, books about Tesla that I found in in the bookstore and Mm. this included his patents and kind of opened the door to the idea that there are people that had discovered things technologies inventions science stuff that was not mainstream and that could change the world if only everybody knew about it if only we had embraced this kind of like this the sense that there is there's knowledge that was forgotten or possessed only by a few, right? And so when you when you encounter that, obviously the first thing you want to do is build it yourself.
0: Yeah. And the
1: second thing is you want, it becomes meaningful for you to try to get it out into the world. And so I think that's really the beginning of, of um, my relationship with the kind of weird science stuff. When I was in high school, I met a... A gentleman who's my friend's dad, and he had a .dot com. This this would have been 1999, 2000, right? So he had a a startup company, and I was 15, and he hired me as a web developer. So uh, I was uh, doing coding stuff, but he also had an interest in this kind of stuff as well, and he turned me on to the science conference that was happening in San Diego later that summer. It was a meeting of the Society for Scientific Exploration, which not many people know about, but is kind of secretly the group of uh scientific and academic professionals who are credentialed in their disciplines, who focus on things like sci research, consciousness, um, alternative energy, unconventional healing, ufology. Most of the stuff that's around the subject that, that is behind the subject in the world it can be traced back to the SSE. So um I was like, well, I got to go to this, right? So uh, I found a way to get to San Diego, and I was about a hundred people there. Was, you know the youngest person by 30 years, um, but there was a really lovely pair of people at the SSE named Bob, John, and Brenda Dunn, um, older folks, um, and they kind of noticed that there was this random kid wandering around this <laughs> conference, and you know, started talking to me and. Uh, made me really feel at home and introduced me to many of the other people there. And Bob and Brenda uh, were the, the people that ran the PEAR lab at Princeton. Bob had been the dean of the university, the engineering department, for uh, two decades, I believe. And his laboratory assistant, Brenda, kind of kind of ran the lab. And the PEAR lab is a, was a leading consciousness research outfit. Um, one of the last of the, the research organizations that kind of traced its roots back to the, um, the kind of turn of the century um, parapsychology laboratories. It was like Duke. And I think there was one in New York as well. And and um, so became friends with them. And uh, over the course of a couple of summers, I spent working at Princeton in the pair lab and learning all about um, how do we do science, how do we do rigorous science, particularly what are the sociological aspects of trying to do unconventional rigorous science that is, is valid, their, their outcome is valid, but the results don't necessarily fit into the box of sort of mainstream standard model theories. Um, and that was really my, the beginning of all of this. So by the time that I ended up going to, to college, I had, a pretty deep understanding of all the ways in which the standard model perspectives in physics that you learn are incorrect. But my job as a student was to learn the basics of the standard model physics stuff, um, which was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I kind of developed a secret life, right, where I was in the summers kind of um, hanging out with these people that were doing much, much, more, much more advanced things. But then my life as a student was this kind of humdrum rudimentary morass of undergrad. Um, only later in life was I able to kind of bring the two together and do um, both the kind of unconventional science stuff and, um, and sort of bring it into the world a little bit more. Um, not through more research necessarily, but through developing applications and businesses surrounding these concepts to, to kind of get it out into the world.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think one of the, I think actually one of the first times I had even heard about you and your work was when I came across uh, the Entangled app that, uh, that you were working on. And I, I'm assuming you're still working on it. Um, but that was fascinating because to me, it was like, Here's an app that's, that's going to attempt to, you know, activate everybody's cell phone to essentially see if we can find, based on, I think it's the, the random number generator sort of uh, initial work there done at the Paralab, see if we can see any meaning within collective consciousness or, you know, what information can we really pull out of that? Can you talk a little bit about that app too?
1: Yeah, well, I'm still working on it. Um it was always supposed to be kind of this side project that I would do because I, I didn't think that anyone really cared so much. Um, but when I announced it, there was this huge buzz about it, right? And so then I've you know, basically been putting the time and resources that I have available into it um, to get it sort of past beta and into a production ready version that is, allows you to do rigorous research. But I'll kind of back up a little and talk about the Pear Lab and then the Global Consciousness Project and then Entangled the app, Right. it kind of goes in that direction. So the pair lab is famous for this experiment using random number generators. Um, a lot of the people listening to this have probably heard of it, but a random number generator is a machine and it converts physical phenomena into ones and zeros. So think of quantum processes, could be anything, but we typically look at electron tunneling or quantum tunneling. These are unpredictable physical events Think of it like a random popcorn of electrons, right? And you can basically look at these random popcorn of electrons and you can assign ones or zeros to their behavior. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially that's it. So that you get this nice output from this machine of ones and zeros, like 50-50. Now, that output can be skewed via the conscious intention of somebody um, trying to affect it which is what the pair lab studied. So um, according to sort of mainstream um, standard model physics, at least one interpretation of it, there should be no connection between consciousness and the physical world outside of our bodies. Uh, But that's not what we see with the random number generator experiments. If you ask somebody to intend to shift the output of these things towards more ones or more zeros, whatever they choose, you typically see a significant um, mean shift basically in the direction of their intention. Simple experiment, but the implications are profound, right? That means that consciousness is somehow connected to the, fundamentally to the physical world around us. And that it does not seem to be limited to the physical constraints of the brain and body. Um, That's largely being accepted now, or some permutation of that thinking is creeping into the mainstream. But it was, it was pretty heretical back then. Um, Out of the Paralab came this thing called the Global Consciousness Project. And this was created by Roger Nelson and Dean Radin. They said, okay, well, if, if individuals have the ability to affect their surroundings, presumably that means that all people around the world are affecting their surroundings in different ways in different times. So it would be really cool to try to measure that and see if to see if we can basically take the EEG of the planet. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So they created these uh, portable random number generators connected that could connect to a computer and they sent them, there's about 70 of them and they uh, sent them to different parts of the world. And this is about 25 years ago and started collecting data. Now, what what they found is that during events that polarize mass attention, or that create emotional coherence among the population, you find network covariance, meaning the EEGs start to behave less like independent random islands, and more like coherent uh, coordinated devices. So there's coherence in the network, so they're behaving less random and, and slightly more ordered. And you can put all that data together, and you can measure it in statistical ways to uh, to show an effect. So this is how most people have heard of the random number generator stuff is through the Global Consciousness Project. Most famously, on September eleventh, uh, a couple of hours before the first plane strikes the tower, you see uh, this big spike in in the data, um, really significant spike. I think odds of one in 10,000 or more and so uh, this has really this project really captured the imagination of of people when they when they have heard about it for the first time um, but it's only 70 devices and the next stage to me was pretty obvious which is to take these uh, this concept and put it into a mobile phone right so create a random number generator on the mobile phone so that we could have it kind of running in the background in the pockets of hundreds of thousands or millions of people so that we could ask uh, more and better scientific questions of the idea of collective consciousness. So that effort began for me actually in about 2010 and I got a small grant to uh, develop a way of creating random number generators on the phone, uh, which was successful. Um, Early tests were successful. And then I moved to San Francisco and um, started the sort of the life of a tech entrepreneur. But in the background, I always wanted to continue this project to see if, you know, see what we could find. So I ended up announcing it around 2014 that I wanted to do this and had a lot of interest. Um, so return to the, return to the idea. Um, and more or less since that time, as I've been able, we've been kind of creating different versions of how to create random number generators on the phone. Um, there's been more and better ways and more sophisticated ways of doing it. Um, sometimes Apple will change their algorithms and now the, the app won't work anymore, or uh, it will work in one way but not in another way that it actually has to work. So it's actually been an enormous pain to, <laughs> to get this to work. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I continue to work on it. Um, we do actually have some initial results uh, that came in last year, which we can talk about too. Uh, So the app, anyway, is called Entangled. And uh, it's sort of meant to be this exploration of global consciousness, um, but also sort of a first attempt at bridging consciousness and technology in a a large and mainstream way.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating. I'd love to discuss some of the results that you have so far, but I want to rewind real quick to what you said earlier, you were saying uh, how there was the spike on 9-11 um, a little bit before that first plane hit the tower, which, which sort of begs this interesting question, is like, um, you know, have, have there been some, I guess, meaningful speculations around what that spike represented? I mean, it felt like consciousness was sort of tapping into something prior to it actually happening on a global mm-hmm. level. Um, which makes me think a little bit about, um, I know HeartMath's research kind of suggests that the heart has an intuitive intelligence that I think can sense events, uh, don't quote me, but I think it's somewhere in the range of three to four seconds prior to it happening, but we're talking two hours here um, on yep. a global consciousness level. What, what sort of speculations have been there around what that was exactly?
1: Many. <laughs> it's a, um it's still being debated as to what this means. There's, there's no question that there was a significant, a statistically significant effect that showed up um, prior to the plane striking, and persisted for for many hours for the rest of 9/11. I personally relate to that as something that we see very often in psi research, which is kind of the term for mind over matter research or parapsychology research, um, and that's that. Um, time-delayed events are very common. So you can do an experiment where you would try to attempt to affect a random number generator slightly in the future, or slightly in the past, and you can have the same sort of results. So the time domain of these things doesn't seem to be quite as relevant as it is in normal forces that we think about. Um, There was was experiments by Spottis, and May, and and later Daryl Bem at Cornell. Daryl Bem is like one of the grandfathers of modern sociology. He's the man. And what he did is he hooked participants up to a device that read the, uh, basically the muscular tension in their finger. And they showed, he showed them a series of uh, images. And those images ranged from, you know, uh, a pastoral picture, some forests, a happy dog. And then occasionally at random times, one of those images would be something provocative, like like a violent scene or a naked woman or something like that. Um, And he found that the participant's fingers would tense up um, in seconds before being shown one of the provocative images. So you can do this experiment over and over again and you can put all the data together. And he found something like, um, I believe it was odds of 74 billion to one that this is uh, an effect due to chance. It's clearly not. So there's something about the human being itself, about human consciousness, probably our subconscious, that seems to be tuned to the near future and responds to it, and that that makes perfect sense because you you think about all the stuff you have to be attuned to in the near future just for your own survival, driving a car or these types of things. So with the the Global Consciousness Project data on September 11th, it could be that what you're seeing is something like a collective effect of that pre-sentiment, that pre-sentiment effect. Um, But there's also this possibility that because of these time delayed effects, after after the events of September 11th unfolded, and I guess probably even for years thereafter, because that was so significant, when you go back and look at the data, by going back and looking at the data, you have an expectation, or the experimenters have an expectation that there's going to be some sort of effect, like there's gotta be an effect on September 11th, right? It was the most significant day of the last century. And so, you go back and you look at the data, and of course, there's an effect, right? Um, and it can happen even a couple of hours beforehand. So it, it's always really difficult to parse out whether or not something is a, an actual pre-sentiment effect, or whether something is a, a time-delayed retroactive or retrocausal effect backwards in time. Right. That's really the discussion. It, it's not so much is the data real? It's is is this retrocausality, or is it pre-sentiment? Is it a collective experimenter effect among, among the people doing the experiment or the people that are looking at the results and reading about it? Or are you actually measuring something called global consciousness with these you know, devices spread around the world? That's really the question I think that, that needs to be answered.
0: Yeah, it's like a, like a chicken and an egg type situation, right? So it's like I'm, I'm sort of unpacking this a little bit in my head as you're sort of expressing it. It's almost like uh, really looking at what is the effect On consciousness on our reality from the standpoint of like once let's say we were looking at it from a linear time perspective right where it's like okay there's time which is kind of how we perceive things and how we've come to culturally perceive our reality it's almost like once something happens it sort of sticks but what you're kind of saying is something could happen there may not be a sort of massive focus or a massive spike per se and from a consciousness point of view, but you could actually decide that that was a very meaningful event later in perceptual time, look back and then suddenly see a spike. and you would kind of never really know the difference, which kind of leads to this it goes back to the double slit experiment uh, and the observation effect, obviously, which is kind of what this this is all about. It's like it, it, it leads to that big question if, if uh, you know, if a uh, tree falls in in the forest and nobody's there, did it actually happen? Did it make a sound, yep. so to speak, right? which is a fascinating thing that I'm just still wrapping my mind around um, kind of what to draw in terms of meaning from a lot of this, because I think that's kind of the, the, ten, the tendency we have is like, what's the, what's the value of exploring? I mean, uh, this is a, actually a fair question to you right now. Is like, what's the value of exploring this stuff from your perspective and experience so far? I think
1: that science is not a substitute for truth. Um, And that sounds like kind of a crazy thing to say, but I'll explain. I think that the truth is something that should free you. When you hear the truth, you should have a sense of being freed somehow, right? Freed from incorrect assumptions or freed from uncertainty. And science doesn't do that. Science, if done properly, it produces data. It it can show you objective facts, but it only points at a truth that is metaphysical. And what I mean by that is that the meaning of of experiments, the meaning of science, the meaningfulness of it comes from us, right? So it comes from our interpretation. I think that there's a tendency to conflate science with truth. And um, Lord knows that we, we need more science and objective reasoning in the world. Absolutely. But it, it doesn't tell you, it shouldn't tell you what its meaningfulness is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, if there is any one thing after decades and decades of psi research that would, that would tell somebody when to know if you're getting an effect and when effects will show up, it's meaningfulness. So, uh, like anomalies or effects really accumulate around meaningfulness in an experiment. That's true not just of random number generators, but probably true of every experiment that any scientist does, period. <laughs> if it's meaningful to them, then you're, you're generally going to get effects surrounding it. They don't want to admit that, but it's probably very true. Jonathan Schooler, um, I believe he's at Santa Cruz or Santa Barbara he did some profound work looking at decline effects. So a decline effect is where you'll do an experiment for the first time and you get amazing results. And then this is, this is true of psychology, biology, right? Whatever. And then you'll do it a few more times and it de- the effects decline, right? Kind of reverts back to the mean, if you will, or to, to no effect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a traditional way of looking at that would be oh, well, it didn't survive replication. Right. You thought you, you did something wrong in the experiment and so you're not getting the same effects. A consciousness, meaningfulness perspective, however, would interpret that completely differently. It would say, look, you as the experimenter are really excited because you thought you were a clever guy and you were going to reveal something You that know, was going to be career making. And so you did this experiment. Of course it worked, of course it worked. Um, the first time you do something is often very successful, right?" And um, but then the second and third time when the this subsides, the effects decline. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean that's really the big thing that I've learned in in all of this stuff is that you cannot divorce the experimenter from the experiment, and we like our minds and our our. We're inclined to try to believe and interpret things a certain way and to hold on to our beliefs about things and interpretations a certain way because they connect to our other meaningfulness systems. Um, and those are really powerful and they can generate results, but it's not necessarily what you think it is. Hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a, a funny story about this. <clears throat> about 10 years ago, Buddy and I were trying to figure out how to create a psychic machine. Uh, In other words, one of the problems of trying to get reliable psychic information from a human psychic is that, well, it's got reliability problems. So they don't always, they, they, they inject all of their own assumptions and interpretations into it. And so you're not really sure where the true signal, the psychic signal is and where Um, interpretation, like, you know, left-brain interpretation of things are that can become wrong. So if you could remove the human from it and just have a machine that was somehow a psychic machine tapped into, you know, the the quantum field or whatever it is that sort of connects us, then maybe you could have much more reliable psychic information. Uh, Maybe you could even sort of predict the future. So we were thinking about how to do this. And we thought about this experiment with that I just mentioned with Spottiswood and May and Daryl Bem, where they were measuring the um, the subtle clenching of our muscles prior to being shown a provocative image. Like that's it. We're going to have a machine that's going to react somehow to an event in the future that's going to scare it. <laughs> so like, okay, how do we scare a machine? Um, suppose you could hit it, or you could shock it, or dump water on it. And you'd sort of measure the machine and um, see if it, if it freaks out prior to being you know, shocked or scared or something. And I figured that actually the way you would do it is you'd pull the power. That's how you kill a, an electric machine, is that you cut the
0: power. One, one question, just to interject on that. Is this also, in, in essence, trying to determine whether or not that machine is, in a sense, self-aware? Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. So to build a psychic machine is also to build a conscious machine. Right. right. Yeah. But without the, presumably anyway, without the, uh, the psychology involved,
0: right.
1: which kind of messes up the, the psychic signal, then um, you would, the idea is that you probably get like pure, pure signal from it or something. We're just playing here, right? Yeah. So anyway, so we took this random number generator. And we recorded, we built a system that recorded its output, you know, so it's constantly outputting ones and zeros. And then we have this other random system that at random times just suddenly cuts the power to the first one. So there's no way of telling when the power is going to be cut, but we're recording, you know, we're recording the output of like the victim, if you will. (laughs) So I leave this thing running overnight and I come back in the morning, and I look at the data, and the power has been cut like three or four times during the night. And then I look at the the output of the random number generator, and within two or three seconds before the power is cut, there's this huge drop. Like there's it just goes 0, like tons of zeros,
0: right?
1: Hmm. You put them all together, so you, you line up all the time, the moments in which the power is cut with all of the data and like the, the minutes or seconds before the power is cut, can just kind of aggregate it. And it was significant on, on the order of like 10 million to one or something. So it was like, whoa, this machine totally predicted, you know, the future, <laughs> like at least, at least three seconds before it actually happened. So I packed this up and I sent it to my friend Garrett Medell, who's an engineering professor at CU. Um, Very qualified, competent gentleman who runs his own lab and all of that. So he gets his grad students um, to rebuild the device and uh, just building it up from scratch. And he runs the same experiment that, that we ran. Again, tens of millions to one that this happened uh, seems to be predicting the future. Uh, he's super excited now because he's like, this is incredible. Like we built a conscious machine that's going to change AI, not only that, but you can totally predict the stock market or something
0: like yeah, that. Right? Yeah.
1: So it's very meaningful to him, right? To do this. Cause yeah. he's, he's excited again about, about science and about doing something completely new. So I think we did three or four replications, all of which were very successful, cumulatively, the output of these were greater than something like two billion to one, more significant than the entire global consciousness database over 25 years put together. Um, So now he moves into this, psychologically, he moves into this next phase of, well, the meaningfulness is reduced and it's more about how do we Like where do we go from here so what are the nuts and bolts of this does another experiment no results does another experiment no results changes everything back to the way it used to be another experiment nothing to this day it's never worked since (laughs) so it declined it went you know from crazy significance and declined down into indistinguishable from from chance Hmm. so how do you interpret that? Well, did we change some variable in the experiment? Mm-mm. Did we use different devices? No. Like you could go down the list of things and it's not there. The only change is the psychology and in particular, in particular the meaningfulness of the experimenters involved that declined and that yeah. produced the decline.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when I think about it, I I think about the uh, you know, we'll say it's we'll say it's a you know, a current human challenge, but but I would say even specific to Western culture, it might be a little bit more of a human challenge to uh, be so analytical, be so mind driven, and uh, the, almost the feeling that I got when I was when I was listening to what you were saying, just kind of paying attention to just even the subtleness of like what I was feeling listening to it, I was like, if if we assume there is a field of consciousness that does connect us all and that is inherently you know connected to everything, and if, if that field of consciousness is aware and intelligent, and if its tendency is towards evolution, like constant evolution, then you might assume that if the wholeness of that is observing, in a sense, the individual experience, and this is kind of complex in terms of like, how would it be separate from the whole, but you know what, you know what I'm kind of saying? Like mm-hmm. if almost the collective consciousness aspect of it is somehow able to tap in or observe the sort of individual experience of, wanting to explore consciousness, and if in a sense it knew that the current experience of humans at that moment was that of tendency towards pure logical exploration, it would provide or it would it would allow results that allow the human to come to terms with the fact that there's something more than just the mind, that there is a conscious relationship which should be enough to say, ah, we're something deeper, i.e. we're evolving. Mm -hmm. But then the human, through free will, steps back into identifying back with the mind. But there's no more purpose anymore to show meaningfulness. Because it was already there. You're just kind of now in overkill mode. That's kind of the feeling that that I got when I was listening to it. Um, Any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, okay, so there's a reason why meditation teachers and gurus will tell you not to focus on the, the cities or uh, the, the weird phenomena or sensations that happen. Don't get caught up in that because you'll have this profound experience. And then the next day you'll go try to recreate that. <laughs> and it's not there, like you can't, re- you can't, because the point isn't to try to recreate these experiences that were meaningful to you in the past, right? right? If you're doing that, you're not learning from them. Uh, the point is to stay in touch with the, the pure awareness that yeah. is you, right? Present moment. And all those other phenomenon, meaningfulness, yeah, that's great, but there's, a, there's a, they're time sensitive, right? <laughs> so there, there's a deeper point here, like, like, like what you're saying, which is to, in this sort of trickster way, which is to get you to think that you've really uncovered something that is different from something pure, like your pure awareness or pure consciousness um, or maybe some sort of pure path. And it will lead you th- through this meaningfulness phenomenon. It will lead you astray and you'll, you're going to follow it and you should follow it in the beginning, if only to know that it was actually you all along that you right. were chasing. Yeah. Uh, people often ask me, with this entangled app, you know, looking at collective consciousness that you want to do, don't you think that the military or like the CIA or something is going to uh, appropriate it or try to take it over. And I mean, I don't know, uh, certainly not entangled, but uh, with respect to the the military or intelligence agencies interest in these subject matters, their interest in the subject matters is going to be, how do we amplify it? How do we amplify the psychic signal, the, the telekinesis or the psychokinesis or whatever? And so they're gonna create these, you know, these black programs that are well funded to try to get people to you know reproduce these phenomena. And they're gonna get they're gonna tweak, tweak something, change some variable, and get some sort of effect. And they're like, aha, we figured it out. Yeah. And then they're gonna pursue that a little bit more and then it's gonna go away. <laughs> and then um, oh shit. If we do this other thing, then we're going to get a stronger effect. Now we figured it out, and they're going to, you know. So basically, you're going to keep following this stuff and keep following this stuff until the point where you realize that you're just chasing your own tail of meaningfulness, and you're going to end up exactly where you were. So, I actually don't think that the these programs have really developed um, much beyond where everyone else is, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly believe that they've tried, but I actually don't think
0: that they're they're further along than, than yeah. uh, is
1: assumed, maybe, in the conspiracy community.
0: Yeah, and that's that brings up an interesting question that I've been sort of, I mean, people who are watching this may be like, yeah, Joe, you've been talking about this the last few videos. Um, it's this whole idea of, you mentioned earlier in the conversation you were talking about how um, We have this we have this tendency to want to move past uncertainty, right? So know something for certain. We have this tendency to want to really just utilize science as a as a way of saying, yes, this is true 100% of the time, so to speak. And perhaps there's there's times where we can say that and there's other times where we can't and there's other times where we think there's no meaning, where there might actually be meaning or, you know, we have this whole dance with science. But it leads to this sort of interesting moment, because while you were finishing that uh, sentence, you you also stated um, that the world does need a little bit more reasoning, a little bit more logic, a little bit more um, critical thinking, if you will. We seem to be in a time of, um, especially even with COVID, but certainly prior to COVID as well, where um, controversial ideas or what are called conspiracy theories or um, alternative versions of of history, reality, facts about current events seem to be like extremely popular amongst people. Um, I know we've been doing this work for a long time, but it's like it almost feels like there's a there's a whole other mass of people that are kind of saying, you know what, I'm really listening right now. And I've kind of observed something that's really hitting me like a two by four in the head. And it's kind of been lightly tapping me for like a year. And now it's like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Which is why I'm talking about it lately. But it's this idea of of it almost feels as though a lot of the and there's no real easy way to define this, so I'm going to just do my best to contextualize it. But there's almost like this like alternative or conspiracy type community, right? That I'm really recognizing like has kind of thrown critical thinking to the wind. Um, And I'm not saying it's all people. I'm saying there's there's a large amount of people where it's almost like they're not critically thinking anymore because they've decided on what the truth is, and So you kind of have mainstream media and alternative media say, right? And on one hand, we're getting a narrative that's like, you know, from the mainstream, perhaps it's like, we know it's compromised, there's corruption involved, so on and so forth. So we're looking for more. And the alternative community has, in in some ways, kind of become just as ideological as the mainstream community, but about different things. Because there's this sense that we want to be certain about exactly what's going on. And like, I'm curious to get like some of your take on this, because I just feel as though we're at a critical juncture where we absolutely need to be having these important conversations. Yet we're kind of leaning towards pretending like we know so many things so certainly about how our world works and who's running it and what's going on. When in reality, there's a lot more uncertainty that we need to admit to in order to really make sense of what's going on. So much
1: to say there. Um,
0: it's, it's true that just because
1: we might have a uh, knowledge of the conspiracy world doesn't mean that we're awake.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, a proper awakening is something that happens inside you and it doesn't deal with particular pieces of information that can, that can trigger it. Right. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, you could say it's learning to think for yourself, but Actually, I think what it is is, it's becoming to become awake. Right, is to be aware of when it's not you that's doing the thinking inside your head. Right. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yes, there's definitely been a lot more people that are trying to find answers. And they're finding answers in, in let's say it's broadly, the, the conspiracy or the alternative world for a couple of reasons. One one is that if you're going by the mainstream and you're trying to figure out why things are happening, good luck. There's there's no way that you're gonna make sense of this, let alone predict what's coming next. However, if, if you do kind of come from an inculcation in the conspiracy world, everything makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It all makes perfect sense. It makes so much sense. You can predict what's going to happen next, right? So, and, and that's because a lot of it is true. And um, and it, it's the only thing that, that is consistent in a world of complete chaos for people right now. And so, of course, they're gravitating to it. And they're also being told, don't look there. Don't look there. Right, right. Ban, ban everything, right? So, you know, we know what that means. <laughs> um, but... <clears throat> Just because it's unconventional and conspiracy stuff doesn't make it doesn't make it true. Just because you know these things doesn't mean you're awake. Right. Um, sorry, it's just not that easy. Um, right. And I I know that because I've made mistakes before, and I continue to make them in, in this in this regard. One thing that the let's just I, I, well it's COVID or the riots or or just whatever. Let's say one thing that 2020 hmm. has done uh, for us. Not just to us, but for us is that it has pulled back the curtain um, in in the world and it's shown it, it's shown you the the real quality of the people around you it's shown you the character of your local politicians it's it's shown you what the foundations of your society are built upon <laughs> yeah. uh, and to me it's and it ain't healthy, it's it's not as healthy as the polished veneer would, would indicate with, with that curtain not pulled back. Yeah. Okay, so it's important to look at these things because these were problems that existed way before 2020.
0: Yeah.
1: One thing that it has shown me is the degree to which trauma is um, boiling under the surface for so yeah. many people. Um, individual traumas and collective traumas, uh, it's one thing to to think that you understand your neighbors, your family, your coworkers, you know, the people close to you when everything is copacetic. Uh, But the stuff that is the real driver of their personality and their perspective comes to the surface in trying times. Yeah. Um, Where do you even start with the trauma stuff? Um, I think that as a human beings are, are largely traumatized in different ways. Some people deal with it better than others. Um, some people have done a lot of internal work or they've sensed that they had to do internal work through yoga and meditation and eating right and religious conviction and whatever it is that helps helps you deal with, with trauma. Uh, but others haven't. They haven't begun that process of, yeah. of recognizing and healing. And so when you have something that's like, the boogeyman of the virus where you've all got to wear these masks and let's just take the masks, for example, which to my thinking as a scientifically inclined person is not the most effective way to deal with, um, you know, a, a viral contagion, but there's other people that are deer in the headlights, man, you see it in their eyes, their eyes are terrified. Yeah. Uh, not only do they have masks on, but they've got gloves on, they've got a welding mask on. They they live in a in a world of absolute fear and yeah. and near paralysis. Um, and it and it's not just because it isn't because they're afraid of a pandemic. It's it's because this pandemic thing is triggering something inside of them that's that's traumatic, probably from, from young adulthood or or adolescence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> You know, we still, particularly older generations, they were hit as children, right? They were spanked as kids or worse, right? They're, you know, our parents treated their kids with threats of abandonment if they were asking too many questions, um, you know, with, with being physically hit if, uh, if they did something wrong. And, as, and it's hard for us to put ourselves back into the, the mind of a child as an adult Because as as an adult, a spanking doesn't mean anything. Um, You know, the the words that we say as an adult, it doesn't really connect with us. But as a kid, they're catastrophic.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, They're super catastrophic. And, you know, if you grow up with parents that have this attitude towards you of because I said so, not because they will reason with you to try to explain things, uh, but will in, in, in... various types of brutal ways, treat you as well, deal with you as a, because I said so. And if you don't, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get hit. It's no surprise to me that it creates adults in a society that will go along with a government or authority figures whose authority isn't based on any type of reason or logic Mm -hmm. or well, you know, articulated arguments or any arguments but it's a because I said so. Right? Yeah. Um, it's because if you don't, we're gonna throw you in a cage.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, and now the, the normal reaction for a healthy adult would be, the hell you are. Like, first of all, everything you're saying is totally dumb. And second, try it. You know, we're not gonna take this anymore. you be not gonna tolerate this stuff. But if you're traumatized kids who grow up into adults, you're going to, not only are you gonna tolerate living in a world like that, a because I said so world, But if people start to disagree with the authority figures, you're going to freak out because you know, what's going to come next, right? You're going to get hit. Right. And so you're going to try to suppress people around you that are going against what the, you know, what the false authority is trying to tell you to do and believe. Yeah. Um, It's just going to come out of you. It's, 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 it's the trauma speaking.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a great analysis and something I, I deeply resonate with because it's almost like um, I think what uh, you know. I, I know what we've tried to do here a lot is sort of um, sort of balance this uh, what you can call a spiritual awakening, if you will, uh, you know, spiritual that word can be very loaded can be a what, you know, what does that mean means different thing to every every person. But the awakening you were talking about even before where you were kind of saying even realizing that you are the observer behind the thoughts, so to speak. Um, is almost like this spiritual experience to some extent. And a lot of people are having spiritual experience uh, right now. But it's like, you know, the mainstream narrative, if you will, often lacks that spiritual context around what's happening in the world, what people are feeling, what's going on. And it kind of turns everything into, well, everybody just wants to, to feel safe. It's like, well, what does that even mean? And like, why? And like, where's that from? And like, you 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 can't just say that every single person that's deciding to have mistrust because they've looked at their world and observed their world and said, well, I have reason to not trust. I, I it's verifiable, it's evidential. It's not a matter of I'm a conspiracy theorist. I have I don't have a good reason to trust government or whether it be local because you know like you were saying that that curtain's being pulled back and it feels like the the mainstream community sort of um, and again I'm I'm just putting labels on things. I don't mean to like paint everybody with one brush, but. Um, you know, they're, they're lacking that sort of spiritual understanding or that, that deeper understanding of what people are going through. Sort of on the flip side, if we we're sort of pretend there's sides for a moment, which I think to some extent there is, um, you have the alternative uh, thinking people. And uh, they're kind of going through the experience where they're like, they're mad at the parent, right? They're mad at the government. They're mad at, you know, this whole thing that they're doing and, and the anger's there. Um, and it's almost like lacking... The spiritual context again of like, what really am I upset about? How did I make this bed, as opposed to just blaming sort of the the government all this time? How did I partake in this? How what's what's my role in this? What's my experience in this? And um, really developing the inner faculties to explore what that is to look at the inner work. And I kind of think this is what I've been grappling a lot with lately is this idea that, um, almost making the suggestion that just as much as some of the mainstream per se community is at, at failing to have these discussions about what's really going on in the world, it almost feels as a lot of, not all, but a lot of the alternative communities kind of having the same failure in that at the end of the day, what's the end goal, right? What are we trying to achieve here? If we're trying to change our world, if we're trying to make things better is is just waking people up to what's going on behind the scenes, is that enough? Or is there something deeper? Is there, is there something more to the picture? And, you know, based on how you're feeling, based on what you said, and based on how I feel and what we've been trying to do for so long, it feels like it's really time to start acknowledging and having these, you know, this spiritual inner, uh, inner work conversation amongst the exploration of current events.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, you're right there is something deeper. Um, personally, I have my suspicions that you, you kind of have to you have to see the let's say, people are kind of on one side or the other side, broadly, yeah. like the in, in, in this example, let's say of the, the kind of alternative conspiracy world and sort of the mainstream world. And we're being pushed further apart, right? Yeah. <clears throat> the The task at hand for each of us is to recognize the other side inside ourselves, mm-hmm. and maybe even to go as far as to see what's happening, literally what's happening, as a projection of, unresol- of unresolved, um, disunities and conflicts inside of ourselves. Um, be honest we we've all got that potential, right It exists inside of us and and so the the work of bringing our country back together again, the work of bringing our, our countries back together again the the work of bringing peace and transparency and all these good things that we all do want um, back into our lives and back into our communities is the work of healing those divisions inside of ourselves. Um, It's I think that's kind of the only way in in the same sense that how do you undo the effects of of child abuse um, as a just in society is will you start with your own kids. Right. Right. It was done to you, but like it's got to end there. So it's it takes time, right? It takes time, but it's it's worth it. it's, it's the only way to do it. So one of the, this is like totally crazy stuff, but sometimes when I, I look at what's going on in the world, for that week I'll do a meditation where I'm, I recognize the people with whom I disagree with as myself, as part of myself, and I'll sit with it. And I'll try to understand it and see what it has to teach me. And instead of being angry at that or upset about that, um, I'll, I'll do more work basically to integrate it. And it kind of seems like, like it actually works. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm just not reading about it as much, but um, at least I'm not as, as, as upset or affected by it anymore. Um, it seems like the craziness kind of subsides in certain ways when I do that.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because it's kind of like a, a, just a technique to connect with, I guess, all the aspects of yourself, but also to relate to everybody else in a way where, you know, oftentimes we, we want to say, oh, well, that person's just asleep or that person's just stupid or that person just doesn't get it or whatever it might be. We, we sort of dehumanize other humans. Yep. Just as we dehumanize government or the deep state or, you know, the, you know people that are pulling strings behind uh, society, all these various things that, that we kind of, I think we rightly sense that exists and that's there, but we're, we're like unclear as to all the details and exactly how it all works and exactly what it all looks like because it's really hard to prove any of that stuff, right? But, but we kind of mm-hmm. know that there's something going on, right? Um, and so we dehumanize it all. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes this like big thing where it's like, that's out there and this is me. And, and it's almost like there's this integration um, that, that needs to go on. But yeah. um, it's, it's a fascinating time. And, and, you know, so when you look at COVID, right, and, and like you said, you, you've kind of talked about what it's done for um, sort of individuals and collective consciousness to kind of start questioning and, and seeing things more transparently. Um, has there been any like data around, You know whether any collective consciousness phenomenons have gone on during covid because it's been Mm. such a polarizing event
1: there has actually Um, the gcb did produce uh, some data that was interesting around this event Um, in order to do good science in this field what you can't do is be collecting data all the time and then when there's a spike in the data to look at what happened in the world and go, aha,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, that's it, it, obviously bad, right? Because if you have a, long, a large enough sample size, you're going to get just by chance, big swings in the data. You'll have periods where you just for no reason get tons of ones or tons of zeros, right? So you have to pre-state the, you kind of have to pre-state what counts as an event before the event, and it has to meet certain criteria. Right. That used to be easy before 2020, <laughs> because there were only so many events that you know were like this that we could point to, and they had fairly sharp, uh, you know, they're fairly sharply defined. Um, with 2020, it's just like every week is something else, is something else, and so, and it's it's also prolonged. Mm-hmm. So that's made that's made this difficult, I you know, for Roger to to come up with something rigorous. However. What you could say is, okay, well, let's look at what happened on one date that maybe really defined something like COVID. So you could say, okay, on the 11th of March, the WHO formally announced to the world that this was a pandemic, okay, and this was where the news cycle really kicked in and where people started to really pay attention and go, actually, this is is a big deal, right? And the media... Um, you know, it's been, it's been pandemic in the media ever since. You look at the uh, cumulative network uh, data on the 11th of March uh, and for the rest of that day, let's say. So when you look at that, indeed some really interesting things happen. Uh, there's a sharp downward trend very, very sharp downward trend from the mean that lasts all day. And I think it's the odds against chance on that one were 10, four in 10,000, something like that. So it's, it's significant, certainly, you know, probability of 0.004, 0.004. Um, <clears throat> so to the extent that you're key, you're able to define where this event began, basically, um, yeah, there's some some pretty significant downward trends.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So it's it's kind of like uh, in this case, humanity sort of responded on a collective level, i.e., they were able to sort of our our consciousness uh, at the at the the understanding that this was a pandemic um, seemed to have interrupted the randomness of reality is kind of the simplest way to put it. Now, what that means, we, you know, we don't we don't 100% really know, but it, it kind of goes back to the, the conversation at the beginning, which was, um, you know, at the end of the day, we're realizing we do have some there is some effect of our consciousness on reality. We're just not 100% sure what that is yet. Um, and, and I kind of want to sort of segue from that a little bit into um, your attempts at building the the psychic uh, machine and the self-aware machine and obviously you know you think of Terminator right you think of like the the, the machines just come self-aware and, and start attacking humanity right that's kind of the that's kind of the big um, injection of what that world could look like in collective consciousness that then paints a picture of how people might respond to hearing of these ideas and of this news and I sometimes wonder like would we draw such uh, sort of negative, predictions if that movie hadn't come and then people would suggest well maybe that movie was a prediction of what's to come and we should be careful these are all valid uh you know questions to ask valid discussions but um i i want to sort of uh segue this piece into uh something that was said um during a london real interview with david ike where he was kind of uh laying out and i think it was pretty interesting the way he was laying it out but it 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 brings up this question again of like so he was talking about how Elon Musk is creating all these like different Neuralink, uh, uh, I think it's Neuralink is what, what he calls it, um, technologies, which is trying to integrate you know into our brain, and and so that you know we have this sort of like AI and like we can start sort of on the road to transhumanism and like how this is part of a big agenda. And these are all like valid things, you know, and in, in a lot of ways, um, what he talks about resonates with me. But it, it sort of it becomes difficult to separate our fear of what's happening uh, Mm -hmm. from sort of what is actually happening and where it's going. And and I guess it brings back, I'm kind of like answering my own thought here, but I'd love, I still, I want to hear your perspective, but it almost brings up this question of like, again, really being more intuitive about Mm -hmm. what this means as opposed to just, hey, it fits the agenda. Oh my God, it's bad. But what are your thoughts on kind of some of that criticism of, these advancing technologies, like someone, you know, David might look at what you just did there, for example, in trying to build a psychic self-aware machine and say, you're a psychopath, because that's kind of sort of what he did with Elon Musk. Um, but I'd love to get your take on this, <laughs> you psychopath. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I actually had the opportunity to, to, to talk to David Icke personally over a couple of beers about this very thing. and. Um, he did not call me a psychopath, at least not to my face, um, but you know, he did have this warning, which is like, there's no, no good can come of, of playing with consciousness technology. Um, or, and I disagree. Yeah, I just, I disagree. I think that that's a David Icke filter coming through. Yeah. Um, and we've all got our own filters and we've all got other people's filters that we adopt as our own filters. Um, I think that there's a our brain is a very fragmented place our mind is a very fragmented place because our mind gets information from our sense perceptions and our sense perceptions can only see things in terms of comparisons that's how they work right and so we're very inclined as as human beings on the mental level anyway to to see things in terms of um in terms of like these dualities, right? Um, which I think has something to do with the idea that dualities are things to sort of overcome and that's like the spiritual task of being in this simulation or this planet or something. Um, <clears throat> and we've got to resist, we, we need to be aware of our tendency to see things in terms of, of dualities, to kind of filter them in uh, for facile reasons, if nothing else, into our own good, bad, mm-hmm. uh, right, wrong, left, right kind of perspective um, that, to do so is, is a mark of a sophisticated person. Yeah. Now with the technology stuff, the same applies. Um, just because somebody is working on consciousness tech or, um, like a for example, does not imply that this is a harbinger of a dystopic, um, uh, you know, picture of the future. It doesn't necessarily imply that it's not either. Um, but one criticism maybe, uh, or one, something that I've noticed in the alternative and conspiracy community is that, um, th- like fear and anger are big drivers, fear and anger are very present in, uh, as kind of a baseline condition among people that are looking out for these things. Yeah, And I understand why it's because uh, they're trying to get people to wake up and to say, Hey, make sure that we're going to go down a human road and not an inhuman road. Right. Yeah. And if nobody's listening, it can get real scary and you can be made very angry <laughs> because it feels like we're you know barreling towards this dark future and no one's paying attention.
0: Yeah.
1: But that same fear and anger can uh, unduly influence our, our, you know, how we interpret things that are coming. Right. So, so, Elon Musk's Neuralink, for example, is, is viewed very skeptically. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, maybe it turns out in the future that Neuralink isn't, you know, some sort of mandatory brain implant that's going to rob us of our humanity and make us like drones in this uber Marxist planet or something. Uh, but maybe it enables the paralyzed to regain body control or to, to learn to reuse their circuits again. To, you know, regain use of their, of their limbs. Uh, maybe it can help people learn to create new paths around centers that involve depression uh, yeah. or PTSD, um, and uh, and it, it it can be very enabling to people that um, only have, you know, the pharmaceuticals thrown at them as yeah. alternatives. So you know, there's a, there's a way in which the things that are happening can be stepping stones to a really bright future, a really fantastic future, um, and not necessarily just this constant and perennial downward movement of society.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm working a lot of this stuff out as we go here, because it's a, it's almost like this, um, I think, I'm sensing at least that this is What's happening here right now, not just with this conversation, but in general, is almost like this process of we're we're sort of faced with this task of of mass polarization, right? Mm -hmm. It's so loud right now. It's so obvious. Everybody can feel it. Everybody can sense it and the need to make sense of our reality and our world such that we can move forward and not be moving forward in constant fear and survival mode is becoming increasingly important and um, developing these sort of uh, faculties within ourselves to help make sense of the world, you know, moving beyond the fear, moving beyond the, the limited sort of biased thinkings, uh, I think are really important and is why I sort of keep coming back to this conversation in a sense. But, you know, it's like it's like I recall watching a, a show, I believe it was, on Amazon Prime, and the name is escaping me right now. But it's sort of like this uh, slightly future set in some regards, but it, it also felt like it was Current times at the same time, and the guy lost an arm uh, from a snake bite, and and uh, there was this laboratory in essence that was kind of just exploring everything, and uh, and he actually developed a, a neural link, if you will, so i.e. a technology that you know communicates with the brain such that they can put on a mechanical arm and that arm operated as if it was his real hand, right? But it was something, and you know that's essentially what you're talking about. It's it's the application of these technologies for Uh, improving, you know, um, conditions that may not, that have been, may have been unnaturally sort of removed as opposed to, hey, the human body, "Mm, it's not quite there. Let's make it better by becoming half machine. Right. And that's a very positive sort of way of looking at things. And I almost feel like sometimes this, this ultra dystopian view sort of is an ideology that through which we then say, everything that's happening that can fit into that ideology must mean that ideology. And Mm -hmm. I almost feel like it's a very sort of, uh, you know, how are we to make sense of our reality moving forward if we're we're always jumping into how it matches these either dystopian future or it's always going to be a good future because there's no nefarious you know, intentions out there from people like, say, Elon or government or whatever it might be. And I'm like, I, again, I'm just kind of working this out as we go here, but I'm just like, it seems like such a fascinating time to be able to take a step back and really question are these people that have become very popular voices in this open thinking space stuck in their own ideologies and in their own projections of the future? And how do we question that? But at the same time, if they're right, you know avoid that right and it's it's a very interesting space to be in i don't i don't mean for that to bring up fear for people but to really look at how do we develop the faculties to make sense of this mm.
1: i think that is the task uh the same group of people that are very afraid of neuralink are also very pro uh ufo propulsion technology sure but the ufo propulsion technology means that you could create a desktop-sized weapon that could annihilate the planet
0: yeah so
1: so where's the fear of the ufo propulsion technology well no what what's going on is that you relate to one thing in one way and you relate to something with just as much power uh a different way so yeah it's a choice right so and i think that's probably the mark of a of a more sophisticated society that you're going to get toys and capabilities that could be used for good or they could be used for bad okay and so you're going to have you know we collectively are going to have to do the work to come from a place where we make sure that we use them from good so we need to be prepared for the responsibility uh for the trappings of a new world yeah and, and perhaps maybe the tensions that are, and the division that's promulgating in society is, is some sort of projection of that. Like this, we're gonna have to uh, f- figure out this problem if we're going to be, if we're gonna develop the responsibility necessary to, to, to wield the trappings of this new world that lies before us.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, because I mean, it's an idea, I've heard others throw it around, I mean, I, I've thrown it around, I, I've interviewed someone uh, you know, Susan Manowich, um, you know, working a lot in the in the new energy space. And there's there's this sort of consensus, uh, not to say that it's like, oh, yeah, this is it. But there's this consensus possibility that, um, you know, even the the what you it's it's hard, what you might call the suppression of free energy technology, if you will, is an almost welcomed reality based on the fact that some of these technologies like you said have the potential yeah. and if they're in the wrong hands or you could say the, the the adolescent thinking lack of connected lack of evolved um consciously society maybe maybe humanity is not quote-unquote ready for yeah. these technologies right and and these are yeah. it's not to say that oh my god there's this uh there's this vast uh, judgmental figure that's saying you're ready and not ready, but, but looking at it from perhaps a little bit more of a mature point of view is to say, like, would you go into a schoolyard with, uh, you know, a machine gun and give it to one of the kids and, and just, (laughs) just let them have that, right? You wouldn't, right? There's, there's kind of, and it's not, again, it's not to say that there's overlords that are making these decisions for us, but what happens if there's a collective consciousness that is, is, Sort of agreeing on the state of the playground, if you will. Yeah. Um, again, very sort of speculative ideas, but it, it, it what is it? What does it push for at the end of the day? If there's an aspect of you that says, you know, I, I, I would love to move beyond fossil fuels and to welcome these incredible technologies, part of you goes well. Maybe, maybe I do need to get past this separation thinking, this, this lack of peace within myself, this anger, this fear, all these things that I have within myself that, that create so much division. You know, Maybe it's an encouragement of, of the inner development of, of peace and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. I, as time goes on, Joe, I think the same way about it that you seem to be thinking. Um, and, and even if there was a nefarious cabal who are suppressing this stuff, what's causing the nefarious cabal to be suppressing it? Like, right. you know, so... <clears throat> Consciousness. Exactly, it's just this mechanism by which things are held in a certain state, right? Yeah. Um, that means that we are suppressing it.
0: That's right. right. <laughs> you and I are suppressing it. Right, and this is, this is the beauty of it.
1: It is, it's, it's amazing. Um, it means that there's no such thing as, as disclosure UFO disclosure to other people, there's only disclosure to yourself. Meaning, are you, Joe, am I, Adam, ready, uh, for, you know, to, to live with our space brothers or whatever it is that Mm -hmm. might be out there. Right. Yeah. You know, disclosure is real. It's like, no, seriously, are you ready? (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And if, if you, if you're honest with yourself and you follow this thread, sometimes the answer is like, oh shit maybe it isn't. I thought I was, but maybe not. Yeah. Because, you know, like I, for one, I, I work really hard on multiple businesses, uh, very long-term, uh, forms of the very long-term projects. I put my heart and soul into various things. So, so have tons of other people. And if disclosure happened tomorrow and we've got all this new technology that comes out that just completely obviates like everything that we're doing.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And all of my identity as somebody that um, can kind of see this coming, like yeah, that, that's a huge change. And um, maybe subconsciously, I'm not ready for that. Maybe mm-hmm. subconsciously, most people in the UFO disclosure community are not ready for it. Yeah. Because no one's going to listen to them anymore.
0: <laughs> right. And this is a this is a There's no place for them yeah this is a fascinating uh question because it almost even uh looks at you know the totality of everything that we want changed um as a collective we'll say Mm -hmm. um everybody included like um there are people who are wanting something as simple as uh political reform Mm -hmm. to people who want an entire new economic system that doesn't resemble what we're using today and the question becomes in in any instance um, Are those people truly open committed willing to let go of the old uh, to even welcome in the uncertainty of the new so how good are we even at being within uncertainty and i think this is kind of the this been underlying theme of this conversation has been uncertainty it's almost like well there we are again are we willing to step into uncertainty right are we willing to actually explore what that means and what that can feel like which is something you mentioned very early on in this conversation um, which is you know being being really attuned to uh, the present moment or that awareness that you are right which is which is to say you know the the you know uh what's been said many times over it's kind of like it's the true nature of who you are i mean i don't think we can say that scientifically but i mean it's this Mm -hmm. it's this long-held discussion of that's who you truly are behind the mind are we willing to really be there um on a on a mass scale and um, I, it's a it's a fascinating aspect of this but I, I kind of want to if we haven't already covered it I know you have a bit of a theory on sort of how exactly consciousness creates reality um, if I if I said that too loadedly you know please correct <laughs> me but <laughs> I know it's a it's a it's a big uh, sort of idea to explore but I kind of wanted to go through uh, that in specific detail.
1: okay. Yeah, um, no one ever asked me that question, so it'll be it'll be fun to fun to talk about. <clears throat> it's not necessarily a a model for how consciousness affects physical reality. I think that's an open question. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I ain't got the answers there. <laughs> um, but it's more of a model, a heuristic for understanding how individual patterns create events in our world and how they sort of overlap. Uh, But to kind of get to where I'm, I should tell a story uh, really quickly that will kind of capture the whole thing. I have a friend who's a, uh, she's a retired scientist. She lives in Sedona and she's got this big backyard and this big backyard is full of lots of wildlife, including uh, raccoons. It's got a lot of raccoons. So, uh, seeing that she's a retired scientist, she had this idea that she wants to use a random number generator hooked up to a machine that is like a feeder. Like it feeds deer and um, and. I guess any creatures, right? Like dogs, you know what I mean? It's like this, this machine and there's a timer and it, right. every you know, few hours it spits out some food pellets or something.
0: Yeah.
1: So she, she took a random number generator and she connected it to the machine. So at random times, it would spit out pellets of food.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She Puts this in the middle of her lawn and uh, turns on a video recorder, gets out her binoculars and she spends a week just watching what happens. So the idea of course is that because it's a random number generator there should it should be susceptible to the influence of consciousness right. Right. So here comes the first raccoon into the lawn and the raccoon smells that there's food inside this uh, inside this system and he's trying to figure out how to get it right Uh, and he's clawing at it with his raccoon hands and you know walking on it and you know trying to figure it out and he can't figure it out so he sits down and he's kind of looking at it and gets back up and walks clockwise three times around the system and out comes this uh pallet of food and he's like uh, gobbles it up and then he walks again three times around the machine, and out comes the pellet of food again. Wow. It gulps up. Wow. So in his mind, he thinks that he's figured out the secret to getting the food. You've got to walk around the device like this. Of course, that's not, there's no secret in walking three times around, right. you know, around the machine. It just happened by, by chance. And so it was very meaningful to him so he's engaging in the ritual, right, to produce the pellet of food. Okay, so he goes away. Next day, the whole family of raccoons, and they're all trying to figure out how to get the food out of the machine. Can't figure it out. <clears throat> so here comes the first raccoon back into the circle of raccoons, and they all kind of move away. And he, he's like, you know, I got this. I'll show you how to do it. Walks around the system three times. Out comes the food. Several of them as well are doing this over the course of that afternoon. Did they get it? So, um, you see where I'm going. It's uh, our consciousness at a very deep level creates these associations um, that produce effects, right? Physical effects. So, this association for the raccoons was that you have to walk around the machine to produce the food, right? Um, but now you can kind of extrapolate that into understanding people's patterns on the world. In other words, what type of associations have we developed ourselves, or that collectively we all just we were born into, and we sort of believe that ends up producing effects in the world? Right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of a very consciousness-first perspective on how phenomena actually exists in the world. And so the core ones are things like what we would call the fundamental natures, uh, the fundamental like physics constants. So you've got gravity that behaves a certain way. You've got electromagnetism that behaves a certain way. And um, these types of things that are necessary for consciousness to enforce on physical reality in order to create a stable environment for biological life to exist. Right? Yeah. Or at least so a shared need...
0: experience. Yes. Yeah
1: a shared experience, which when you're inside the shared experience looks, looks like this, right? Right, right. (laughs) Um, so you have these, like these, you you can maybe understand the characteristics of a person by the the unique collection of associations that, 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 that is that person. And that unique collection of associations probably grows throughout lifetimes. Um, maybe, I don't know, that's my speculation. Um, or maybe we tap into them. I'm not exactly sure, but um, so that means that you can you can only overlap with another person or another entity or some other consciousness to the extent that your associations have enough like space, kind of like Venn diagrams, over which to to exist. So you and I, you know, we've met each other before. We can exist in the same reality space because we're both human. I think, um, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, we have, we have certain other characteristics that um, allow us to sort of coexist. And this is true of most of the people in our world, our cats, you know, these types of things. Yeah. We, we might look very different, but we, we overlap in our associations enough to, to kind of have the shared experience. Yeah. So um, this is kind of like what I would call like the associative model. Uh, I didn't come up with that, but uh, a friend of mine who sort of did the legwork and all of this stuff came up with it. Um, it's, it's, it's a way also to, to start thinking about how we could explain the existence of biological life in a different way than Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll, I won't get into this too much, but there's some problems with strict Darwinian evolution, some scientific problems. a lot of biologists know it too. I mean, it, it's it's if you really think about it, it kind of borders on the absurd that all of these uh, events just happen by chance to create these yeah. um, genetic permutations that are favored, and you know, on down the line, like the it just you know this is where creationists, uh, like sort of creationists have have uh, made the argument that clearly. Darwinian evolution is absurd because the numbers don't work out. So there must be a creator. I think that's kind of not correct also.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and we're, we're probably in our lifetimes, we'll have some sort of consciousness first perspective on the formation of, of biological life with consciousness at its center mm. that looks a lot like the associative model yeah. um, <clears throat> with consciousness. You have something that they never talk about, which is called feedback. Um, So if consciousness has feedback with its environment, it can change very rapidly, and it doesn't require extraordinary amounts of time, cosmic amounts of time, for random permutations to, to happen to affect it. It's similar to you try to do a Rubik's Cube blindfolded, so every movement you make just by a chance. And there's some like thousands of years or something it would yeah. take to, but if you have the the blindfold off, you actually have conscious feedback coming into consciousness where you can make decisions, then you can rearrange the structure of the, of the uh, Rubik's cube to, to solve it in, you know, minutes or seconds in, in the case of some people. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of like what consciousness is doing in the physical world is it's, It's sort of tapping into and developing and expanding its own set of associations to create more and more complex life forms and create more and more complex patterns on reality. Now, that's one part. The second part is it actually relates to the retro causality aspect that we were talking about before. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And basically it's this idea. We think of the future as a probability function of the present, Mm -hmm. meaning the future isn't here yet, but there's a likely future that's going to happen. So in another one minute, odds are that you and I are going to still be talking, right?
0: Yeah.
1: But maybe my computer cuts out, or your computer cuts out, or uh, I don't know, there's a fire and the sprinkler systems come on in a minute and I have to leave, we have to cut it short low probability events, but a non-zero probability, right? So the future is a probability function of the present. Now, if you think of the past as maybe a probability function also of the present, in other words, not as something that happened and is set in stone forever and all time, but is actually like a probability of certain events that happened, which I think is a pretty natural way of thinking about it. And it's actually one interpretation of of quantum mechanics that, you know, real scientists actually take seriously.
0: Yeah.
1: And that means that the only moment, the only time at which p equals one, which is to say the only moment in which things are actually real is the present moment. Right. It's, it's right here now. It's this, it's this present moment. And everything else in the, in the future or the past basically orbits around what happens in the present moment. So you, as a consciousness, have these particular, particular associations that create a pattern on reality. Okay? These, are, these are your conscious and imp- especially your subconscious beliefs and um, perspectives and habits and that's creating this, this pattern on reality, both in the future and in the past. <clears throat> now, you're overlapping with other consciousness that is the same, right? It's, it's got its own patterns on reality. So that <clears throat> if you put all of these together, what you get is what we think of is reality, but it's not actually reality. It's more like consensus reality.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: the present moment, what is the consensus? Right. If you're going to go look at and, and the consensus is the, uh, the accumulation of, like cumulatively, it's the associations of all that people within that given, however you decided to draw the circle around them, right? Um, if you collectively went to look for evidence of something you think happened in the past, you're only uncovering, you're only looking at the evidence in the present moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which means that you could actually, through because it's uncertain, consciousness could be shaping that uncertainty in a way that's congruent with some characteristic of the present moment or, you know, some sort of probable future. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's basically like my personal heuristic for, for sort of understanding the world and also for creating effects. Uh, I did a, a whole talk at, at um, contact in the desert last year about the Mandela effect mm. and how we can understand it maybe from this point of view and even did even did certain experiments that engineered little Mandela effects here in my office, yeah. like among my employees uh, following, you know, my crackpot theory here, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, which totally became true. And I don't know, it's this whole funny story, but I, I, I kind of think that I have my suspicions that particularly in the in, when it comes to an evolutionary biology, that my crackpot perspectives are going to become less crackpot and actually are going there's going to be something like a new perspective on on life and its evolution that starts to resemble a lot uh, yeah it starts to resemble the associative model
0: yeah it goes back to this and you know i, I think what's fascinating about that um which I, I i definitely resonate a lot with and sort of um you you definitely shared a lot of uh uh, we'll say deeper details than um, than than some times where I've shared a couple of ideas similar that then posed questions within my own self as to like, hmm what what might explain this or what might explain that? And it's it's sort of this idea of, you know, I think people um, specifically enjoy to oversimplify things like, for example, like the secret, right? Which is like this idea that, you know, your consciousness a shape your reality. If you were to uh, focus in a particular fashion, um, you could get what you wanted, so to speak. And, and then you might ask the question, um, well, there's actually several questions. Is one, why does it not work for everybody? Because um, it obviously doesn't. Um, are they just not doing it right or is there something else at play? Um, is there potentially a, like an individualized sort of, um, whether you want to say modifier or limiter, um, that's specific to that person that states, you know, this isn't really an experience that you're ready to have or you're supposed to have, so to speak, in your journey, uh, which again, sort of looks at an evolutionary question. Um, how does my experiences evolve me as a person, as a consciousness? Um, so there's that question of like, why doesn't it really work? And then there's also this idea of like, you know, you create your own reality. And, and I, that never really resonated with me on like an absolute level. It almost feels as though, and, and you kind of talked about this at the beginning of your thing, where it's like, um, we're sharing a reality. So it's like, if you're going to say, oh, let's go play soccer. It's like, well, in order to play soccer, we have to sort of define what the rules of that game are. And so that we can go and we can play it, right? Um, if there was no... And I don't want to say rules as in it's unchangeable, but if uh, we would have to change those rules as a collective for it to change the game and make sense that we can all play together. And so it almost comes into this idea that at all times, we're really more so co-creating our reality Mm -hmm. as opposed to individually creating it. But it still leads to that question um, where it goes. So there are some people and you hear this in lore, but there are also things where you're kind of like, hmm, this is really happening. So like from a lore perspective, you might say, um, you know, there's a lot of people who will talk about monks, for example, who have levitated, right? And they're going, well, you know, how did this monk levitate? And people, some people will just say, well, it's a bunch of crock. And another group of people would say, well, no, 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 like I've observed this, I've seen this, this is absolute, this has happened. So it begs this question of like, how is it that the individual was able to, through some, you know, chance of focus, stretch beyond the, the quote-unquote limitations that we've, you know, collectively agreed upon. How did they achieve that? And then it goes back to this thing we were just talking about earlier, right? Which is perhaps that happened because consciousness does tend towards evolving and that experience provides that pushing that evolutionary, like, Hey, you are capable of expanding, expanding. Cause this is what it does, right? It's constantly expanding. But anyway, those are all my thoughts and ideas on that. But like, I guess to get really specific about what I'd love to hear some further thoughts on is like this idea of how do we explore the idea of those that do stretch beyond the apparent limitations, like the guy who will drink a poison and, and not be affected by it. How do we, how do we explore that idea? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. So much to say. Um, uh, it, it makes sense of, ah, it makes sense of so much. Okay. If, if we're co-creating reality and it, it's something like modeled like the, the associative model, then you gotta be really careful about the people that are direct observers or are around you because they will either permit or disable certain phenomena from happening or certain effects mm-hmm. from happening. Um, and oftentimes they won't even know that they're doing it. In fact, most of the times, they won't even know that they're doing it because we're talking right. about a, a subconscious level here, a, a very, very deep level. So I don't know if I could actually personally witness somebody levitating or flying. I, I'd like to tell myself that I think I, I could see that, but subconsciously, who knows if I could, I've never seen anything like that. So if there was a guy that could do it, and you know, he came into my office and was like, yeah, I'll show you how to do it there's a chance that I would be suppressing that anomaly or that phenomena from happening because it just contradicts um, so much of how I think the world works, Mm -hmm. which is typically why I think you see people that can do crazy stuff or that want to do crazy stuff or uh, like stuff that's outside consensus reality, they need to actually go away from consensus reality, go into the caves or into the forests and, and do their thing. And um, this is why you, know, you see people that are doing uh, rituals or something like that to, to make it rain or some sort of like, you know, think, think of the witches that go under the cover of night uh, out into yeah. the forest in their hoods. It's, a, it's not everyone, it's a collect, it's a small group of people, believers. They, they say their magic words and they do their magic stuff because like the raccoons, they have certain, uh, those are basically like permission systems that they're giving themselves. Yeah. You know, the only they know the magic words or whatever it is, right? And, and in so doing, they create the, you know, the phenomena that they're trying yeah. to create. Um, <clears throat> the, the world of, like, self-improvement and self-growth is full of this stuff. Yeah. Um, the secret as well. For example, is this idea in the self-development world that you are the sum of the five people around whom you spend most of your time. Well, of course. Uh, If you are trying to level up your career or make more money or whatever it is, and you're around people who have success barriers, either conscious or unconscious success barriers, your success is like violating their, (laughs) you know, their um, perspective on reality, their association at some deep level. So you got to get away from those people, and you got to, you know, find, typically find a mentor, right? Which is meaning find somebody who has can prove to you that they're okay with success because they've been successful at a deep level. And then you do their magic thing and you know, you get, you get success, right. Or you start a company with people that are hopefully congruent with success at some deep level and and then it will result. Um, I think a lot of startups fail because the, the people are subconsciously are actually incongruent with success. Yeah, um, you got to pick a, a life partner who is congruent with your goals. Uh, if not, oftentimes you know you're not going to advance or move. Um, so I mean, you can you can just keep going and going with this, but yeah, it, it's something that for me as a heuristic is, has made a lot of sense. Um, it, you can you can reframe most manifestation texts. Uh, through the lens of the associative model, quite easily.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting too because it the the question I was going to ask, which you kind of just you know precognition answered, um, which is uh, which is which is fun in the context of our conversation. But uh, was just kind of what are the implications of all this stuff, right? Like what do, what do we actually do with these understandings of our reality? And I think it kind of just expands our awareness. And I mean, that's kind of even what you just described, right? Is being able to reframe or recontextualize i.e. expand your awareness beyond either complete randomness or you know hey the book the secret kind of explains it but into hey there may be something bigger going on behind the scenes that that we can understand that kind of makes it even a little bit more applicable um, in a lot of ways right Uh, which is interesting there's there's one more question i had that i wanted to ask here um, that's you know, kind of on topic, but also off topic, um, kind of back to the entangled app, app for a second. And um, so getting from a technical perspective, there's, there's obviously a, a, a measurement tool, if you will, within a cell phone that you capitalized on to be able to, um, you know, utilize, you know, each individual cell phone to just sort of uh, measure the quantum ones and zeros, ones and zeros that were going on in that particular area. So that, that, quantum measurement tool exists within a phone and and I had this idea and I don't know if it applies at all and that's why I'm asking you because I feel like you might have some insight on it but you know the phenomenon of like Facebook advertising for example where um, people will be talking about something and then they'll see an ad and so which people then say okay well I've never searched it so it's not cookie-based right so they don't know my interests by, by that Um, so I've never searched it. So how did I get an ad? Oh, it must be the microphone. The microphone listened to my conversation, which I absolutely think is a possibility and they might be using in some regards, but there's another phenomenon that, that I find even more interesting and I'm wondering, um, where the possibilities might be. And it's almost like you think about something. That you've never thought about even really before and it's completely away from all of your interests and you've never even mentioned it you literally this has happened multiple times so much so that I wanted to ask this question where it's like we're literally thinking about something and then next thing you know I'm seeing an ad for it like a day or two later and I wonder it's like okay well there's a possibility that I never really noticed it before but I'll be honest these items are so obscure that I don't know how someone would even be trying to like say, who is my target market for this product or whatever. But I'm most wondering, is it possible that there's quantum computing and quantum ad serving, in essence, that is somehow deriving meaning from thought, from phones, and then able to derive that meaning and somehow categorize it into a particular interest or make sense like you know for example there's um, there's people doing dream research trying to measure various aspects of activity in the brain and then visual like turn it into a visual it's very rudimentary right now it's probably advanced since i last saw the video but they're, they're taking something that is essentially just activity and turning it into a visual i'm wondering is that do you think that's possible uh with some of what's going on
1: I don't think anyone's doing it. I think that what you're seeing is a, it's a synchronicity phenomenon mm-hmm. uh, that exists, not just in products that you see on Facebook that you're just thinking about, but in people that you're just thinking about calling you. Um, right. In, you know, yeah, the, the synchronicity stuff just happens, uh, happens very often. Um, but yeah, okay, so in, in point of fact, I'm actually working on something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about it offline. Um, okay. But I really hope that I can kind of it, Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, we're working on something that's pretty cool right. that uh, hopefully we can we can bring to the to the world before too long. Hopefully in 2020. Hopefully it's not going to be as long as as the entangled app. But
0: Yeah.
1: It's along those lines.
0: Okay. So would you would you say at least that the I guess the technological and perhaps knowledge capability is there where something like that could be possible in the black budget? <laughs> um,
1: well, I've got friends that work deep in, deep in the bunkers at Facebook and Google, and I have some idea of what they're doing. And it is crossing into these realms of, of looking at, um, looking in the direction of cognitive neuroscience and looking in the direction of the subconscious, that kind of thing. But I haven't heard of them doing anything that's kind of woo-woo like that, or that's yeah. involving that stuff. Um, but I think there's a... There's, there's a couple of very unusual things that you wouldn't know and you would never do unless you kind of happened into them or you came from the sci-research world. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what that is offline.
0: Right. Okay. Cool. Well, I mean, it sounds like we we've pretty much wrapped this up here. Uh do you have anything else you want to add before we uh jump to our private offline discussion?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and it won't be private offline forever, I promise. Yeah, yeah, though. yeah. yeah. Temporarily. Um, temporary, yeah. Um, the only thing that that's well, not the only thing, but something that has just really helped me through all the insanity of 2020 is meditation. Um, it's, it's something as simple as that. It's just making sure to meditate every morning so that when I open my phone and I look at the craziness in the news, I'm not uh, thrown too far off and I, I'm not effective at work or not effective in my projects. And
0: um, for those that it's useful to hear, just remember to meditate. Yeah.